My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. Today, my guest on the show is Matthew Limero, and the topic of discussion will be disruptive change, exponential technology, and how to build a fortune. Matthew is the co-founder of Fifth Era, as well as managing partner of Keiretsu Capital, which is the world's largest angel network and most active U.S. venture investor. Most recently, Matthew is also the author of a new book titled Build Your Fortune in the Fifth Era. So, welcome to Singularity FM, Matthew. And I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much, Nicola, for uh, inviting me to participate this morning. Fantastic. The pleasure is all mine. You have an absolutely remarkable uh, biography and, and kind of area of expertise, one which uh, has a lot to play uh, with respect to the impact on our future. And so uh, I've, I, I thought you would make a perfect candidate. So I'm very happy to have you here today. Now, let me ask you, though, to begin with introducing yourself in your own few words. What's the best way to tell the world who is Matthew Limero? So thank you for asking. And it's, uh, it's been a little bit of a voyage of discovery. Um, over the last 30 years, uh, I've, I've played a, a number of different roles, came to America, um, and uh, was first the management consultant. I began my career with a company called McKinsey, and um, then moved on to run AT Kearney and monitor and booze as tech practices here on the West Coast. But about 20 years ago, I decided to be an active angel investor and began to do it as a hobby. And it's taken up more and more of my time. And today, I spend all of my time with entrepreneurs, with other investors, uh, really focusing on disruptive innovation. I'd still do a little bit of advisory work for very interesting clients, some of them well-known companies like Google, where I'm a special advisor on strategy and policy and have worked with them for about a decade. Um, and I, I still like working with international clients who are interested in understanding uh, all of these disruptive innovations and technologies and how they're impacting our world and also how their businesses need to really think about embracing them and taking them on board. Fantastic. And can I ask you to forgive me, perhaps, did I pronounce your name properly? Is it Lomero or Lemero? Uh, it's about in the middle. It's Lomero. Lomero. Uh, and, and that's a very interesting name. I mean, you're a British guy, but you have a kind of a French name. Actually, my family has a very diverse background. Uh, my mother is English. I was born in England, as were my brother and sister. But my father has uh, some French roots, some uh, Middle Eastern roots, uh, some Indian. Uh, uh, are going way, way back, the Lemel name comes from a French trading company background uh, from Nantes in West France. And they traded around the Horn and into the Indian Ocean. And so it's, uh, the, it's, there's, there's been a lot of stops along the way for the name Lemel, yes. Wow, so you have entrepreneurship in your blood, as if it were. Well, actually, everyone in America does, almost <laughs> everyone. You know? That's true. Uh, if you think, yes, if you think about it, almost everyone here in America, and certainly on the west coast of America, has uh, pioneers and entrepreneurs one or two or three generations back. Most of us... Uh, you know, were settlers and came to this country, took a risk, pioneers, 
and certainly my family, my wife, Alison, who is my co-author, and I are first-generation Americans. And we love America. It's been very good to us, but certainly uh, we took some risks along the way. Of course, yeah. And I can say uh, I, I totally agree. I mean, I'm Bulgarian, but I live in Canada, so uh, I, I, I feel like I can relate to that tremendously. But let me ask you this. You got very interested in technology in general, as well as angel investing in particular. Which one was first and why? How, how did that whole story happen? No, it was absolutely first and foremost disruptive innovation. Uh, and the reason was that early on in my career, as I mentioned already, I was working for very large companies and we were focused on corporate strategy, business and product strategy, innovation, helping those companies grow. And, um, you know, if you go back 30 years ago, we were just at the beginnings of the computer age. You know, mainframe computers were established, but new technologies were beginning to surface. Uh, we were becoming more connected. The Internet was just beginning. And it was in that time frame when many of our clients started asking us um, what's really happening here. And I was fortunate to work, for example, on launching BankAmerica.com and then as the head of strategy for Gap, Gap.com and uh, really got thrust into this whole new world of the internet. And um, really the last 30 years has been this whirlwind of seeing how these disruptive technologies on the internet digital side and also on the biotech side. I started working with biotech clients about 15 years ago. Uh, and you know that immersion in all of this disruptive innovation is where it really began. I see. So you started first as a kind of a strategic advisor and analyst and then uh, uh, focused on innovation and disruptive technologies. And then eventually you made the, the step into angel investment of, of your own. Yes, exactly. I think I think it goes without saying that when you when you are immersed in digital innovation, you start to begin to ask yourself the question, how are you spending your time, but also how are you spending your resources? And if, like so many people, you have investments and you're seeing them sitting in bank accounts or in public market companies making one and two and three percent returns, and meanwhile you're watching these disruptive innovation companies flourish and take off, it was sort of inevitable that we started saying we want to get a little bit more exposure and involvement in some entrepreneurial activities. Um, I had been the head of strategy for Gap, so around about 2000 in the dot-com period, uh, people started reaching out to me and asking me uh, to help them launch their businesses, businesses that might have a retail or an online component. And at the same time, uh, my wife had been the CFO, Alison, my co-author, was the CFO of BlackRock, uh, Barclays Global Investors. <clears throat> and so she started getting approached by fintech and financial entrepreneurs. And so we started backing a few, 2000, 2001, 2002, and we've never really stopped. So as I say, it's almost 20 years now of being an active angel, uh, but it definitely came seconds. The first, the first focus was on how's the world changing? How's it impacting industries? How's it impacting countries as well as our clients, large companies? And then that slowly took us into the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Very well. And someone on Facebook was actually asking me to ask you, why did you call your group Keiretsu Capital and what does it stand for? Is it like from Japanese, meaning big companies and stuff? 
Right. Thank you for asking that question. So I, I split my time. So one half of me is Fifth Era, which is my own firm. And we focus on this coming era of disruptive technologies. And we invest and we also provide advisory work. And then the other half of me, I spend my time working with Koretsu, which is the world's largest angel group. And we back more companies, as you mentioned before. The roots of that is the founder of Kretsu Forum, Randy Williams, had made his fortune in the 1990s working with Japanese who were coming to America to invest. In real estate, uh, I think? Primarily in real estate, that's correct. And so Kretsu is a Japanese word that really means synergy. It means people working together, sort of groups of companies and investors working together to help each other succeed. And so he used that phrase to really depict the same type of a relationship that that we as investors would work as partners of entrepreneurs to help each other succeed in a network, not just one on one, but then connecting different companies together, as well as different investors working together. And that's the notion of the Koretsu brand name. Very interesting, because we were wondering if there's some kind of William Gibson-esque kind of a, an idea, you know, from Neuromancer and, and other stories like that. But uh, I guess you, know, you, you told us a real story rather than a fictional one, which, which always is nice. Um, so what's the kind of basic difference between, let, let's assume our audience is starting from the ground up, from zero. So let's talk a little bit about the basic fundamental difference between venture capitalism or venture capital investing and angel investing, on the other hand, because uh, we want to be clear on the differences between those two. Very good. So there's sort of different levels to answer that question, Nicola. Um, at the highest level, venture capitalists invest other people's money through a fund structure, which they manage and then they invest that capital into companies. Uh, and historically, they would invest in startups and then they would follow invest into the later rounds. Um, at the other extreme, angel investors are people that are investing their own capital. They typically don't manage funds, it's their own money. Uh, most times they have experience and knowledge and relationships which they may have built up over time. Uh, as entrepreneurs themselves, as corporate, in, uh, corporate or professional uh, professionals or uh, in other ways. And so they're bringing capital and expertise, but in both cases, it's their own capital and their own expertise. So historically, that was the difference. Um, but however, going down one level in answering your question, uh, over the last 10 years, there's been more bifurcation between the two. And the reason for this is the venture capitalists round about 10 or 15 years ago began to slow down their investment activity in startups and put more and more of their capital into mid and late stage. And so last year, uh, American venture capitalists invested about a little less than $70 billion, which is a huge amount. Wow, yeah. But, but only 3 or 4% of that money was seed and earlier. Uh, and probably about half of that capital was in the run-up to the IPO, pre-IPO or expansion capital. It's, it's, it's money that we used to call private equity. So the venture capitalists have pulled away from early stage investing. And meanwhile, the angel investors of America invested about $25 billion. And almost all of it is in the early stage uh, seed through Series A. 
So the venture capitalists are not venturing so much anymore. It's, there is some truth to that. I mean, if we, you know, when I first came to Silicon Valley, a very large venture capital firm might have been four or five hundred million dollars. And it was absolutely fine to have a $75 million fund. You'd invest that in 30 or 40 businesses. So it'd be one or two million dollars per company. And you were investing very early. Today, we have firms, uh, venture capital firms, that have five and $10 billion under management. And we have single companies like Uber, for example, which is doing rounds of a billion dollars. In fact, in fact, just to, to put, really put a focus on this, last year in 2016, Uber alone took more capital than most of the seed deals that the venture capitalists backed. So on the one hand, you have one company taking as much new capital as all of the 1,000 or so new seed and earlier deals that the, the US VCs back. So it's a very different. Um, and then there's one more level of answering this question. So I, I gave you the definition. Sure. That's great. That's great. But there's another point, too, which is um, the venture capitalists have a business system that is very focused on driving the companies through to be large, successful entities, ideally IPOing or selling to big companies. And they back, as, as I mentioned, I think last year, 7,700 companies, but only maybe 2,000 of those were new deals. Most of them were follow-on financings. The angels are actually, for the most part, operating a different business process. The angels back about 70,000 companies in the US each year. And most of those, if you just compare those numbers, 70,000 and 7,000, most of the angel companies will never go to a venture capital round. So people tend to think it's a single process. The angels back the companies, well, actually friends and family first, angels second, and then venture capitalists third. But actually, it's two businesses, the venture capitalists driving towards an IPO and the angels mostly driving towards moderate sized exits where larger companies buy their businesses or the businesses become modest cash flow positive businesses. And there's only a very few number of angel businesses that cross over and become VC backed businesses. That's just understood. Yeah, I see. Very interesting. So in a way. The, the venture guys have moved up the food chain, whereas the angels are at the very beginning and are taking the company from a rough gem and polish it to the point where it can be taken on either by another company or by venture investments at that point. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say, except I just want to highlight the point that of the, each year of the 70,000 US companies being backed by angels, only maybe one or two thousand per year will cross over and be backed by VCs. So even though that's very a very important piece of the puzzle, and obviously it's fantastic when an angel's uh, a company an angel has backed gets picked up by a venture capitalist. We love that, and oftentimes the venture capitalists are remarkable for the way they build they build the business into a big company and drive it towards an IPO. The point is that happens very rarely. It's almost a unicorn, uh, you know, a, a, mythical, a mythical event because most angel deals become cash flow positive and exit to a modest sized 
you know, maybe a 50, 20 to 40 or $50 million exit to a company. Overwhelmingly, that is how venture capitalists get to the, uh, sorry, angels get to their exit. Um, and so we, you know, I think most entrepreneurs assume that they're going to get a venture capitalist to back them and that if they have an angel, it's going to be the first step towards a VC round. But if there's entrepreneurs watching our show today, that's not the reality. The reality is angels are going to back you 80% or more of the time, and you're probably never going to see a venture capitalist back your company. And you have to go in with that mindset because otherwise you're going to spin your wheels in most cases trying to get a venture capitalist to back you early, and it's not going to happen. I see. So that's a very important point then. Uh, now, Matthew, before we jump into the details of your book, I want to ask a few more questions at the sort of macro level, and then we're going to deep, deep dive into the details. But let me ask you, what's your take on the technological singularity? Well, all right. So <laughs> there's different, well, there's different levels again of that question. And, and so I, I, I'm assuming that the people watching this know what you mean by the singularity. Well, I'll be happy if you define it for us, because one of the things I've discovered is people do have very different flavors of that definition. Exactly. And so my definition may not be the same as yours. Absolutely. So um, in the book, and it's my belief that the world is moving into a new era, a very different from the industrial era. And it's being driven by two macro forces. The first is the digital revolution, and the second is the biotech revolution. And those two things, which really began in the 1960s, but really changed the world in the 1990s and 2000s, have now begun to converge. But there are only two, whilst they are the two driving forces of this change, along with globalization and some other factors, um, we have a lot of other disruptive innovations surrounding these two core innovations, and we can talk about those later. The singularity is the belief that these things will converge at some point in the future. And to date, I would argue we're, we're not there. So I think that the biotech revolution has been drawing and relying very heavily on the digital revolution. And so life sciences, device companies, and so on have been using computing, artificial intelligence, big data analysis, and so on, to drive the biotech revolution forward. But the digital revolution has not today really leveraged the biotech transformation within the digital. So we, we, we're beginning to hear about conversations like the organic computer uh, or uh, nanotechnology, well, bioengineered forms of materials and substances that can be used to change physical products. But we, it's not really happened yet. It's just beginning. I was talking to the um, head of QB3, which is sort of the innovation portion of the University of California, San Francisco, Reg Kelly. And he was telling me about a great company that is now bioengineering um, spider cobweb so that they can use this cobweb to create, you know, clothes and fabric and other materials, sails and things like this, that is much lighter and much stronger than anything that's happened before. So it's coming. But I think this notion of the true singularity, where the human being is changed and transformed, not just the human being, human life 
is being changed and transformed simultaneously by the digital revolution and the biotech revolution merging together, I think that's still a long way in the future. And, and I don't doubt that it's going to happen. Um, I don't know the manifestation and I don't know the steps between today and that future. But right now, I can tell you for sure that huge digital revolution and biotech revolution changes are going. Huge wealth is being created. And there is certainly the beginning of overlap between the two. Mm -hmm. So in a way, are you, you seem to be a little skeptical as per the Ray Kurzweilian timeline, perhaps, or are you not? Um, I tend to be on a little bit skeptical on timelines. Um, you know, I, I think it's easier to see a future and how different it would be than it is to take the real world and change it and get it there. And, and, and obviously every day you're surprised. It's like, I would never have imagined that six or seven billion, well, six billion people would all have a, you know, a mobile device and that four or five billion of them would be chatting on social networks. If you'd asked, if you told me even seven years ago that that would have occurred today, I would be telling you, no, it's going to take another decade, right? Um, I look at something like, I, I have a Tesla. I love my Tesla. Um, I'm, but, you know, I'm one of whatever the number is, 70,000 people last year that bought a Tesla. Well, there were tens, 10 million plus cars sold in America, I believe. I, I Don't quote me on that number. But there's certainly millions and millions of cars being sold here and in China and in Europe and so on. How long will it take before they're all electrical vehicles? My inclination is to say to turn over the entire global fleet of vehicles is a 20 or a 30 year mission. But I might be wrong because the first time I went to China, 15 years ago, there were bicycles everywhere. And then the next time, you know, a couple of years later, there were old and rather basic cars everywhere. And today you see more, you know, top end luxury vehicles on the roads of Shanghai and Beijing than any other city in the world. So that fleet has actually turned over probably twice in the last 15 years. Um, so I do tend to be skeptical on timelines. But that, and that, from an investment point of view, is a very important point. Um, many investors lose money because they're in the right place, backing the right disruptive technology, but they're just too early. And we do, in our optimism and ambition, we do tend to be too optimistic about timelines. And when you're an investor, that's probably one of the biggest mistakes you can make. Mm -hmm. I see. Excellent. So... Let's talk now about how to build our fortune in the fifth era, because uh, I have to, to, to share with you and admit myself that, you know, I've been in this field for over, well, officially seven or eight years, but probably doing research and studying for 10 years. And I'm very far yet from my fortune, to say the least. In fact, uh, I'm not even sure if it's fair to call me an entrepreneur because I don't think, I mean, I have had some success in a number of ways that you measure it, like probably reach of people and creating, you know, uh, a following base or leading a tribe and, 
and all kinds of that. But, but from a pure economic business perspective, when you draw the bottom line, I have not been successful. So I don't even know if it's fair to call me an entrepreneur, to be honest with you. So let's talk about how we can make a fortune in the new era. Yes. Well, your, your first observation, Nicola, is, is important to recognize and appreciate, which is you have to play the game and you have to be on the right playing field to have any opportunity of succeeding. And you, you are. You are playing in the right space and you're finding a way to build your own business, your own presence, your, your fan base, your, your insights and your content. You're in the right space. That doesn't guarantee success. Absolutely. Unfortunately not. <laughs> but why, why should you think that it would? Obviously, success is, is less frequent than the, the reverse. But if you don't put yourself in the place to win, you never can. And I think, you know, I was a, I was a, uh, you know, a, a top rower and rugby player in my youth. And, wow. and I used to. Row, um, I actually remember I, I rode once uh, at the World Masters Games in Canada and I was with a Marin Rowing Association up there. And, uh, and it turned out that a lot of the international uh, teams had not come to Canada. So that we, we had a few Australians and a few British crews and so on. There was one Russian crew, as I recall. But we know that there's very many good rowers from around the world that couldn't come to Canada. And I remember we were talking to the coach and we were saying, is our gold medal a gold medal? Or is it devalued by the fact that those other people aren't here? And he put, and he put it to us, you can only beat the people you're playing against. And if they're not choosing to play, it's not your problem. You're here, you won, you're, it was a bronze medal. Your bronze medal is a world bronze medal and you should be proud of it. And the fact they chose not to come isn't your problem. Mm -hmm. right? They ultimately lost by not competing. I see. So now, now back to your question. Um, our book is first and foremost trying to encourage the millions and millions of people in America who are living in the same time frame that you and I are living in and are choosing not to play. They, and they don't know how to play. Um, and it may be that for many of them that is the right choice. And that's an important point too. We're not saying that everyone has to find a way to participate, but we are saying that you should be conscious of your choices and you should be conscious of your opportunities. And if you then choose to not participate, you had a conscious choice not to play. And that's fine. The book is intended to just highlight what are we going through? Why is it the greatest wealth opportunity the world has ever seen? And what are the choices for playing so that a reader can then get to the end of the book and say, I reject all of that and I'm happy with who I am and what I do. But we believe that of the 12 and a half million accredited households in America, about 97% of them are not participating in early stage technology. And I think a large portion of them, it's, they haven't made a mindful choice about that strategy their strategy is not to participate and they haven't really thought it through so the book is sort of intended to be a thorn in their side forcing them to at least make a conscious choice fantastic and then 
Yeah, and then you're absolutely right. It does not guarantee success. Yes, and, and you preempted my next question and answered it, which was very nice indeed. And just to, to enhance and support what you just said, I want to read a couple of quotes. First is you say, we have written this book for everyone around the world who is aware that we're living in a time of transition between eras, but does not have a clear strategy for participating. And more importantly, this book outlines the nature of the change the world is in the middle of, describes many of the disruptive innovations and the impact they're having, shows why this is the greatest phase of wealth creation the world has ever seen, and provides options and a decision-making process that will allow each and every reader to choose how to play, or will at least make them more informed if they make the decision not to. Yes. Thank you. Uh, yes. Now, of course, the... the the first, and I had that question a little bit later, but of course, the first thing that everyone says when you say, why are you not investing? For example, like me, I, I, I have not had the chance to invest yet, and I am in this field. And my answer is, look, I'm still struggling to, to survive and to put my business to work properly together, to generate enough cash, enough cash flow so that I have some surplus to be able to invest that. Is that a legitimate answer or is that a mere excuse? Because I, I assume or presume that most of the people, and you said the vast, like 99.98% of the population out, out there is on the sidelines. And, and I presume that the most common answer would be, well, I don't have money to invest. All right. So it's a very good point. We, we take a broad definition of investment. So if you think about labor, capital, technology, everyone has labor, their own their own time and energy, and you are 100% investing your time into this space. So I do view you as making an investment into this future anyhow. The second is capital, and, and it's absolutely true. Some people have capital and some don't. Some people have a lot and some have a little. So that becomes obviously more of a nuanced conversation. And then technologies, I mean, some people are embracing them and understanding them, in which case they're investing their own time and energy, getting up the curve and understanding the future now. And other people are trying to reject them and hold them off, um, which in, in the past we called that Luddite behavior. <laughs> yes, exactly. There are, there are anti-technologists who don't want to embrace it. And so they're, if you will, investing their, their units of energy uh, resisting understanding technology and where it's going to head, whereas other people are embracing it. So I, I think you can think about your investment along all three dimensions. You know, how do I spend my time? How do I spend my money? And how do I spend, spend my intellectual brain power in terms of understanding the technology? And I think that you can make an investment on all three dimensions. Now, in the book, by the time you get to the end of the book, we do have options for people with money and people without money. Yeah, you have all nine options, which we're going to talk about a little later. And, and they're all very, very useful, actually, to break out that it's not a single way to do that kind of investment, but there's eight other additional ways. Uh, and, and that's why it's very useful. But I, I don't want to also mis mislead people listening to this. Um, our book is more focused on people with capital than people without. And in fact, we do point to some good resources for people who, by the end of the book, say they want to do the entrepreneur or the employee in a big tech type of uh, strategy. Uh, this book is not primarily written for those people, though hopefully it gives them 
enough confidence that they decide to take that plunge, take that step, if it's the right one for them. Okay, Matthew, so let's take it step by step here for a second and, and walk us through sort of the plot of your book. And perhaps the first thing we should start with is the concept of the fifth era that you have even put in the title and you have named even your own company. And so perhaps also the best way to describe the fifth era is to describe the previous four and how the fifth one is a radical new departure of the previous. That's right. So, um, so in order to attack that question, Nikolai, I don't want to go too far back, but I was a geographer by training at, at Oxford University. It's what I studied. Alison, my co-author, was an economist from Cambridge University. And both of us had to spend time on the history, the history that led up to geography of today and the history that led up to the economics today. It's something we had to study growing up in England. And um, just to keep it really short, you know, there is sort of common feeling, belief that the world has transitioned through a number of phases. People differ on how many of there, there have been. We say that there were four. There was the, the early disorganized world of the hunter-gatherers. At some point, a set of disruptive innovations began to appear in certain parts of the world, and that shifted the world into more of an agrarian, organized farming world. And then more disruptions began to arrive. The world started getting connected. Uh, around about the 14th, uh, 15th century, and we saw long-distance navigation and transportation. We saw the Columbian Exchange as, as inventions, as well as crops and animals were, were shared uh, between the Americas and Europe and the Far East and so on. And so we moved into the mercantile period. Uh, and then with the first industrial revolution in disruptions of steam and steam power and mechanical engineering and mass production, we began to move into the industrial age. Those four eras, some people break them into five, some people say it's 15. You can, you can debate that. We think of it as four major eras. The question then is the industrial era. And here, Alice and I, as we have over the last decade or so thought about it, we couldn't accept living in California and being surrounded by the digital revolution and the biotech revolution and seeing how it was fundamentally changing our lives. We couldn't accept that we were just in a subphase of the industrial era. And so the conventional economics writing about the topic will say that there's been several industrial revolutions and that perhaps we're in the fourth. And in fact, the World Economic Forum says we're in now to the fourth industrial revolution. Um, we feel that it's not a continuation of the last 200 years, that we actually have broken away from a mechanical, physical world, and we are moving into a digital and a connected and an bioengineered world, and that that's very different. And that's why we said we need to call it something different. We could have called it the singularity, <laughs> but I feel singularity is something even further out, and maybe 
maybe this fifth era one day will deserve to just be called the singularity. We chose not to name it. So the book and, and, and I, in our minds, we know that we've broken away from the industrial period. We know actually many of the assumptions and the ways in which we do work, do business, live, etc., of the industrial period are now being challenged and transforming and changing. So we know we're into this new phase. We're sort of living in the time of transition between the industrial and this new fifth era. And then at some point it will become clear how we should name the fifth era. And maybe the answer is singularity or maybe it's something else. We don't know yet. Uh, maybe it's the Borg, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you watch Star Trek. Yeah. You know, maybe it's something positive. Some, maybe it's something we today would view as very negative, the Matrix. We don't know. Um, so we're just calling it the fifth era, uh, and we're recognizing that it is not a continuation of the industrial period. And I'm happy to explain some more reasons why we believe that to be true. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it was interesting for me to notice that you never, to my uh, awareness, you never actually used the term singularity in your book once. Uh, at least I don't think I noticed it anywhere. So I noticed its lack, therefore. Uh, but but uh, so that was one interesting observation, and I think you've kind of made the reasons for that now clear. But talk to us about the features or the indicators that show you that we are kind of at the transitional period towards the end of the industrial era and going into a new period, which is still hard to characterize or to qualify in a very conclusive manner. And you therefore named it the fifth era. Yes. Okay. So I think that there's uh, a couple of uh, points I would make on this question, Nicola. The first is that um, in our minds, the digital revolution and this new phase we're moving into can be really thought of as the time in which the physical, mechanical world that was created at the beginning of the industrial period and that saw the rise of la the large corporate model of business management, uh, the public market way of financing and investing behind that, the typical work model of us as employees having bosses working in a, uh, you know, a work environment, a defined number of hours for a single employer for life, expecting a pension, etc. That model, we think, is really transitioning to a virtual, digital, and to some extent, biotech engineered future that is at the same time undercutting the assumptions that are really the roots of why we do things today. Um, so that's the first point I want to make. Uh, uh, we see that change. The second is the, the, which I hinted at in that first part, is the assumptions upon which our current activity is based are increasingly no longer true. Um, and we give some examples in the book, but we do things today because we do them with the assumptions that they are the right way to do things. Those assumptions were true in the past. So we give examples. Um, the university would be an example. The university did grow up because of a certain set of assumptions about who had information, where it resided, where the model of teaching how you needed to go to a physical location to participate, be near the library, be near the professor, learn in the classroom, and so on. The, 
the digital revolution has undermined those assumptions. The information is available everywhere. It's not only in the, the hands of a small number of professors. Uh, digitally enabled education not only is possible, but seems in some cases to be the preferred model of learning for the next generation. And so you start saying, oh my gosh, we have a university construct, they're everywhere, but the assumptions that they rely upon are no longer valid. So it, we have inertia still operating. And that is also a hallmark of a paradigm shift. So the way paradigm shifts, and again, now I'm going to be a little bit conceptual, but Thomas Kuhn taught us that paradigm shifts occur when not only will the existing theory be insufficient to explain the future observations that we're having, but in addition, someone else comes up with a new theory that can both explain those new observations, but can also explain the past observations, okay? We feel that by calling our world the, for example, fourth industrial revolution, we're not fully explaining everything that's beginning to emerge. Mm -hmm. And it's a sort of a suboptimal way of thinking. Whereas if we embrace the notion of we've moved into a new phase, not only can we explain why it is that people, large numbers of people, are beginning to be comfortable with different models of work, different models of entertainment, different models of how they socialize, right? That we can't really explain within our own constructs. Why do people expose their innermost feelings to other people that they don't know? You know, that doesn't fit with our model of how relationships are built and how privacy and, and uh, you know, and how we operate as human beings. We can't explain it in the old way, the values, the beliefs that my generation was brought up with in the industrial period. It no longer explains the behaviors we're actually seeing. Mm -hmm. So, so that's the second point. If, if the first point is the virtual, digital, and connected world, as well as the biotech world, is clearly not the same as a primarily physical and mechanical world of the past. The second point is the assumptions upon which today's activity is built are being knocked away, and the paradigm we created to explain why we do things is, is cracking and we need a different paradigm. That's the second point. And then the third point is one of, it's really a mindset point. If you think incrementally, you will behave incrementally. Yes. So if you believe that we are just moving into the next phase of the industrial revolution, you will be incrementalist in your thinking. You will be, for example, saying, my company, my country, my city needs to make some incremental improvements and changes because we're just moving into a new phase, right? Whereas if you embrace the notion that it's a completely different world and that it's okay to start with a white sheet of paper, you will actually be able to see and imagine entirely different ways of doing things. And sometimes you have to jump into that clean and open space to be able to see how different things could be. Does that point make yes, sense? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So, so our point would be, whether you agree with us or not, if you're a company, if you're a government leader, if you are a homemaker, you will 
be able to imagine more if you embrace the thought that we're entering a new phase than if you insist on saying no, it's just an incremental shift. Yeah, the way I have structured that in a couple of articles that I have published on singularityweblog.com before is that I've made the claim that the world is transformed by asking questions and that today answers are free, but questions are where the real opportunity lies. That's fair. And you start with the better answer you're going to, to get to, but you have to also realize that answers prov uh, are correct only within a context and a timeline and a time frame. And there's nothing more outdated like the, what was true in terms of answers when it comes to respect to technology. So, for example, when we were young, the answers in technology of that day are very different than the answers of technology of today and will certainly be very different tomorrow. So the, the connecting line is the questions that we pursue. Right? And the more we get to embrace a certain answer too tightly, then we, we get stuck. Uh, and the way to move forward is to keep asking new and better questions and not to bet, get too obsessive about the answers themselves. That's kind of my sort of philosophical take on it, if you will. Yes. Well, I, I actually want to read those articles. You, you, uh, after we finish, maybe you can give me the links because that sounds very interesting. It, it fits with when we do corporate innovation work in large companies, uh, which is see my heritage. Uh, this this notion becomes fundamental. Uh, big companies are bad at innovation historically, primarily because they operate within the belief system of their business, their products, their services their go-to-market strategies. And because of that, they limit their exactly. consideration set. Yeah. And so a lot of what we do with big companies and with boards of directors and leadership in, in big companies is to try and force them to see their own company from the outside and go and see the external innovation environment and then project it back on their company. And oftentimes they see very different things. Um, I would also add two other thoughts to this. Um, one is a thought, big ideas are born bad. And I remember once someone saying this to me maybe 20 years ago, and I, I've always believed it, um, and it's become more and more valuable as a thought. Wow. Big ideas are born bad. Big ideas never are born good. Yeah. Wow. Right? The notion that any person can come in and say, here's what we're going to do, Here's my big idea, and it's perfect, and it's ready to go. It doesn't happen. So the problem is many people become afraid that they've got to have a good idea, and so their good idea is a small idea. It's, it's much easier to come up with a small, good, incremental idea out of the box. Mm -hmm. So what we're, another way of saying this, you're saying it's new questions. It's questions you may not know the answer to, which is also a risky thing in a big corporate setting to ask questions that you don't know the answer to is not always a positive, you know, it's not viewed always as a positive thing to be doing. It's disruptive. It's confusing. You know, people have jobs, they need tasks, they need deliverables, and you're just wandering around asking them questions they can't answer. You know, that's, that's very disruptive. But so, so I love your point. We need to know, we need to ask new questions. We need to believe that big ideas are born bad and it's okay to come up with a big idea. And then the role of all of everyone else is to figure out how to take a big bad idea and make it a big good idea. Mm -hmm. 
And then the third point is science fiction. And so I just want to make this point as a young kid growing up in England, you know, I, I read, I started reading a little bit later than most, but I got very passionate at reading maybe about age 10. Who are your favorites? Well, I was going to share that with you, but it was, it was the, it was the classics. It was Heinlein. It was Asimov. Um, it was Tolkien, more on the fantasy side and so on. But for science fiction specifically, those were people, Dick, you know, Philip K. Dick, these were people who were prepared to make crazy, imagine, uh, creative statements about the future. And some of them wanted to be more right than wrong, Arthur C. Clarke, yeah. and some of them were prepared to be extremely wrong, Philip K. Dick. Yeah. But they imagined these things. And what's now, you know, 30, 40 years later, 40 years later, what I'm finding amazing is I'm seeing the actual manifestation of many of those ideas. Yeah. Really. And it, even down to, you know, the Apple iWatch. The Apple iWatch is basically a not yet ready for prime time version of the Dick Tracy watch. <laughs> Tracy had that watch. And a generation of engineers have been trying to make that watch a reality. Tim Cook, I'm sure, would disagree with you, especially now they have version two and all that stuff. But I would personally agree with you. <laughs> I wasn't, when I said not ready for prime time, because I'm a very big fan of Apple's, um, it wasn't that I'm saying the, I, the watch isn't a good product. I was saying more, it doesn't have all the functionality of the Dick Tracy watch. Because as I recall, his watch could do a bunch of things that the Apple watch can't yet do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're getting there. Uh, and, you know, that that in terms of the questions and the importance of those is that's kind of the very classical Socratic approach, actually. That's the dialectical method of investigation, which, you know, I, I love so much from the ancient Greeks and Socrates in particular, which I think is very helpful in the personal sense for us as individuals, but also in the business sense. Uh, and, and actually, uh, I, I talk about this with my with my clients when I do consulting and advising, uh, because many people seem to be obsessed about providing the answer uh, and, and the one product that's going to solve it all. And then my question is, OK, but what happens when we have a fundamental paradigm shift? Your answer, your product, your solution becomes obsolete. So you have to keep in mind the question and think how the same question may provide different answers in different contexts, in different paradigms, in different timelines, in different epochs, right? Yes, yes. So, uh, Nicola, I know we're going to go back to Build Your Fortune, the book, but we actually are working on a second book called Corporate Innovation in the Fifth Era, which will launch in about four weeks' time. But one of the things for the last 20, just I, I'm, I'm uh, building upon what you just said, over the last 20 years or so, working on innovation, bringing a lot of international companies here on learning journeys to Silicon Valley and helping them with their innovation strategy. Uh, there's some very simple questions that I've often asked large corporate executives and board directors. Um, and the first one is, and I'm to do this very fast, but the first one is, um, where do you believe your industry and your company and your products and services are going to shift dramatically over the next 10 years? And most people actually say yes. Then the next second question is, do you think those disruptions will be created by your company, by your industry, or by people beyond your industry? And the interesting thing is when you ask senior executives that, they never say their company. They say, from my industry, 
or from beyond my industry. If you then ask them, where are you spending your dollars, your people, your resources, the in innovation capacity of your company, it turns out that they are overwhelmingly spending it within their company on internal innovation and focused within their industry. In other words, they spend very little of their resources scouting external innovation in their own industry, let alone spending it on external innovation from without their industry. And, and that mismatch, which is they know their industry is going to change. They know they're not going to be the, the innovators. And yet they're spending most of their resources on internal innovation or on scouting competitive innovation from their competitors and almost none on the place where they actually you know, intuitively realize the disruption is coming from is a very fundamental mismatch. And we talk about that a lot in the second book. But coming back to your point, you've got to ask those questions. And, and those three questions, you can ask any executive of any company in the world those three questions, and I promise you, you'll come up with the same point. You'll always be able to show them that there's a mismatch between what they intuitively know and how their company is being led by them and how its resources are being spent. And I feel like that is another very important piece of this dialogue. Uh, the first book is focused on individuals and how to build your fortune in this fifth era. The second book is more corporate innovation focused. Um, but I just wanted to make that point now because it, it really refers back to your point of us. Yeah, and I was going to ask you about what's next in the end of our interview, but so we preempted that. Uh, so we are exactly on the same page and just reinforcing your point here. The, I see that's particularly true for big and powerful players who are in a near oligopolistic or very strong market position because they can only imagine the world the way it is now. They cannot imagine the way the world could be because they are only trapped into their power and their kind of dominant position right now. Uh, or at least that's my impression. Well, so, but also from a, from a sort of a rational economic perspective, in that particular case where you have a monopoly or close to monopoly of a product or a market, a geography, you, um, it may be rationally the right strategy to continue on the path you're on and resist the disruptive innovations because from a short term net you know net cash flow you know trying uh, to milk that period as much as you can in a way yes and 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 so it's it would it it can actually be cutting off your nose to spite your face in the short term to mm. fully embrace disruption if in that process you give up this enormous profit pool that you're already mining and that you're, you know, that you're defending and, and mining. Um, obviously, we, you know, are not short termists, but the public markets are. So, the, 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 you know, I, I always feel extremely sympathetic for corporate leaders and board directors because the industrial period, uh, the industrial era model of financing and economic value creation is very short term in orientation. And, you know, here in America, at least, we say that the leadership of the company is supposed to maximize shareholder value for the shareholders who own the company. And as a result, short term think thinking may actually be the right strategy. 
and holding off disruptive technology may also be the right thing to do. And they do that both in, through competition, but they may do that through influencing regulatory policy or and, and, and using other tactics. Um, but I think, and this is another point, in the fifth era, we're increasingly seeing a private model of capital formation and investment that allows companies companies to take a very long view. And we're also seeing other parts of the world, like China, as a good example, that is also prepared to take a very long-term view, which allows them to embrace disruptive technologies, even if they're in the short term less profitable than... And so when I, I go to China a lot, and I'm always so impressed by, for example, in clean energy, where China is embracing solar power, wind power, electrical vehicles at a rate and with a passion that we are finding difficult here. Um, and it is because of their long-term view. And it's also because they have a government that is able to make things happen because it's much more of a command, a commanding government being able to drive out decisions from the center, which such as infrastructure, fast rail or other things, they happen very quickly and they happen on a very large scale. Um, but they also have this long-term view. And, and when you look at the Chinese industrial plans, they're very long-term plans. You know, they, they have embedded in them 50 and 100-year points of view. Um, it's very difficult in our worlds, in the West, in, in the UK and in Europe and in the US, for us to take a 100-year view, set industrial policy. Right. And those are some very similar observations to the ones that Jeremy Rifkin uh, mentioned uh, in his interview with him, that especially when it comes to renewables and alternative energies, it, it may be coming from China, or if you're talking about the European context, maybe from Germany. But right now, North America is not right there yet, uh, at, at, in terms of scale, especially. Well, so it's a, it's a we, we actually do, I think, still have a disproportionate share of the scientific breakthroughs occurring in America, even on clean energy. The issue is getting it to market. Exactly, scaling it. It's a funny thing. Yeah, it's a funny thing. You you almost want to brew the brew the concept in America, or you know, just because I'm American, I well, I'm, I live in California, so you brew the concept, but you want to apply it first in China or in India or something to scale it up, and then you're going to bring it back later. Well, that historically wasn't the strategy. Historically, the strategy was create it, create it, design it in America, deploy it in America. Uh, so it's interesting that, that for certain categories of innovation, you know, you sort of want your startup's first port of call to be a licensing agreement with a Chinese company. Uh, and in fact, in virtual reality, we've done that recently with a couple of companies where we backed the company here. The team is pushing the envelope on the capabilities and so on. But we're, because we're seeing the monetization of virtual reality actually picking up faster in China than here, we're licensing the technologies to Chinese telecom companies, HTC and Xiaomi and so on, to take the innovation there first and deploy it. And then our hope is that one day VR kiosks or arcades or other things will will come will appear in America, but maybe that will be 10 years away. So it's an interesting from an investment point of view, it's sort of an interesting question of not only where are the breakthroughs surfacing, but how do you bring to them to market first and which markets are most ready? And, and I'm not sure that it's always the answer of today is always going to be America. Um, 
for a lot of reasons. I see, I see. Going back to your book here. Uh, so we have all heard about the baby boomer generation, generation X and generation Y, but you talk about the new generation that you call generation C in your book. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that generation C stands for and, and why is it so important or what makes it different? Yes. So I, um, I was for a, a few years a booze and company partner. And I, and I just want to give full credit to this particular concept to some of my former partners who are sourced in the book, Roman Frederick and uh, Michael Peterson, Alec Costa and others who worked on, uh, who were in Germany, in fact. But I think that the big insight we had was that from a, a demographic point of view, we tend to think of the world in demographic cohorts. Right? And, and that's and most, most of the time when you hear this phrase generation, it is a cohort-based definition. It's a time-based definition. Baby boomers, Generation X, millennials. And I think the big insight was that, again, and, 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 and again, this notion of industrial be fit there, the big insight was something more dramatic is changing. It's not just that these people have different psychodemographic behavioral characteristics based upon the, the decade in which they were born. It was a realization that they were born never knowing anything other than a connected world, right? And we were born not knowing a connected world. So the default mode is switched. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's very it. fundamental. Exactly. It's very fundamental. And so beliefs, values, behaviors, expectations are coming from a different place. Um, and it, I was at a dinner yesterday with 20 or so of my Stanford uh, Business School classmates. We graduated a long time ago. We were having a very nice dinner. And we got onto the issue of friends, how many we have, and why does this next generation spend all their time on their devices communicating to their friends and isn't that a low quality interaction and it can't be as meaningful as our interactions. Look at us, we're having dinner together. And in the book, we talk about that, but it came up last night uh, and it's so fundamental, which is we believe that friends are people who you know and that you spend physical time with. And then the other behaviors kick in. You share your, you, you share your concerns. You're compassionate towards their concerns. You, you uh, share perspectives on challenges or issues in your life. The millennials, as you pointed out, their brain is switched a different way. So they don't believe that they need to necessarily know physically their friends. And they're comfortable interacting with them digitally but they still actually have, and this is an interesting point, they still have the same expectations that a friend is someone that they share their innermost concerns with and they speak with, but they're doing it electronically rather than in person. And that's okay. But then you, the most fundamental point of that dialogue is if you then ask my friends last night, as I did, when was what is the recency and frequency with which they interact with their friends and they do the behaviors that define friendship? and you compare it to the millennials, it turns out that the frequency and recency of friend-based dialogue 
is much higher with the millennials. So even though from our vantage point, as you know, people that would join in a non-connected world, we say we have less friends, they have to be in person, and they're very meaningful, and here's the behaviors we show. In practice, we don't do that very often. And in many cases, we haven't done it for months with people we define as friends. Whereas the millennials, they start switch the other way. You can have many friends, hundreds. You may not even know them personally. It's okay to interact digitally with them. We still want to do the same things, share our concerns and be compassionate and and supportive of each other. But they do it every day, all the time with 100 people. And we don't even do it with 10. So, so that's the concept of Generation C. It's, a, it's the notion, as you said, their brains are switched a different way. They're already embracing of new ways of doing things. They don't live with the assumptions upon which our world is built. And yet our world is constraining their ability to do it the way they want. And that's going to be true for 10, 20, 30 years. It's going to take a while for... Until they break the mold of our world. Right. Uh, and we, but we say in the book, you know, at the end of the day, you, we can have a discussion about who's right and who's wrong, but I'm going to lose it. They are the future. They're going to be right. There's no question about that. Um, I live in a neighborhood where we banned Airbnb. You know, we banned Airbnb because we think it's disruptive to the community. And people of my age and older, uh, you know, the majority of them said, let's not have Airbnb in this part of Marin County. I know that that regulation will get turned over in about, you know, 10 years. <laughs> because the next generation will be a majority of the voters and they don't believe that. They don't believe that Airbnb is a bad thing. Now, obviously, there are exceptions, party houses creating noise and disturbance. So there are definitely bad things that come with Disruptive innovation is never 100% a good story. All technology is two-sided. All technology can be used for good and for bad. But overwhelmingly, the notion that we can maximize the value of the assets of the world and allow people to benefit more from other people's assets by borrowing them for periods of time, it's a great idea. It is the future, but it isn't the future yet, at least not where I live because the regulators have temporarily banned it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, that's a very, very interesting example too, by the way. But now let's get to the, we're kind of going into the last 15 minutes or so of our interview. So let's get to the bottom line uh, of your book here. Let's talk about sort of the ways, and you have, as I said, listed nine ways in your book in the last chapter uh, of actually building a fortune uh, in the in the new fifth era, and and perhaps you don't have to go through all nine of them, but perhaps you can give us some highlights of a few that you want to share with us. Yes, thank you, Nicholas. So, um, you know, you and I are talking to ourselves, and we're already believers. And you're spending all your time, and I'm spending my time and my money, <laughs> you know, in this in this fifth era already. Um, we, I hope that there's people listening to this webinar between us or there will be in listening to the recorded version who are not yet on this bandwagon. You know, they literally, and, and it's most of the 300 million Americans, uh, you know, most of them are sort of aware, they're reading bits and pieces. Um, the goal of our book was to synthesize all of that. So 
you know, we're prolific readers, Alison and I. We read about things like singularity. We read about things like uh, uh, angel returns, venture capital returns, because we're investors. We read a lot of entrepreneurial stuff. And I tr we tried to cram all of that into a short read. The book is short. It's only 200 pages. You can read it in two or three hours. The order version will be out soon, and you don't even have to read it. <laughs> you know, um, But we want people to move quickly through what's happening, why is it so important? Why is it generating so much wealth? We haven't actually talked about that, but it is the biggest wealth creation opportunity the world has ever seen. And we lay out the facts in the book on that topic. Then what are the options? And there's nine of them. And they range from be an entrepreneur yourself, be an employee in a highly entrepreneurial disruptive company, through a bunch of investing strategies, be a VC or back and invest in VCs, be an angel, or back and invest in angel co-investment funds, then it goes into incubator and it finally ends up with be a service provider. Because just like in the gold rush here in California, actually many of the people that made the most money were not the gold miners. They were the people that sold the picks and the shovels. Exactly. And you can, and you can do that in the digital world too. You can be an accountant and you can say, I'm an accountant in somewhere, Kansas, and I will my accounting practice will be with farmers, or I could say, I'm going to be an accountant in Kansas, but I'm going to make sure that a portion of my practice is with agricultural technologists and technology-based agricultural companies that are serving, you know, the farmers that are the other part of my practice. So you can make a choice, to, even a service provider, you can make a choice to tip your practice, your clients, your business in favor of new disruptive things that are coming or not, and either's okay, but the book just lays out those options. Yeah, and as you notice, I kind of skipped over the, the, the fact that it's the largest wealth generating period in, in the history that we know of, because with my kind of audience, I think we, we can all see that that's, that's happening. Uh, I, I don't think anyone would really argue against that who, who watches my show really because that's kind of like the whole point or with your idea also by the way about the fact that we are going into a fifth year and when we're kind of breaking through the industrial the end of the industrial uh, period Th those are kind of almost given with my audience okay so let me just so nicola let me just there's the knowing doing gap and you know about that yes they may know it but i promise you anyone watching this show has the bulk of their capital invested in low returning asset classes, market stocks, fixed income, or even non-performing checking and savings accounts on a on a you know on a on a cost of living adjusted basis are actually declining. Negative growth, yeah. Right. And and so that section of the book talks about the 20 and 30 percent IRRs that early stage tech is giving. And I think that they, the audience may know it, but they're not doing it. They're not doing it because the vast majority of wealth in America is not in early stage tech. It isn't. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And that, that's a very important point that's hard to overstate. But let's talk about some of the implications here. And, and perhaps before that even... We can talk about what you're referring to in your book as wild cards or showstoppers. Because 
we're coming from a bit of a sort of a scientific uh, process point of view here and we always want to talk about falsifiability or black swans or things that can kind of mess up our projections and extrapolations in our plans so talk to us about the wild cards in the uh, the wild cards in the showstoppers yes thank you for doing that so and i agree with that mindset so um i've done a lot of work in the past as a scenario planner um, and as a long-term sort of modeler of ecosystems and other things, as a consultant for companies, um, it's very important that we worry about those exogenous variables or even in, internal to the company variables that could disrupt our vision of the future and the plans and so on. In this particular case, I think Pandora is out of the box, and I don't think anything is disrupting the fundamental shift to this new world in terms of disruptive digital and biotech and other innovations. But I do believe that the rate of change, not only for the world as a whole, but for parts of the world, countries and regions, could be dramatically faster or slower depending upon some of those wild cards. So some of the wild, we, we outlined four in the book, there's obviously many more. You know, uh, we talk about geopolitical issues especially around globalization. We've gone, we've, we're right now in, the, in, a, in a period when it's been easier and easier to serve global markets because the barriers to, to trade around the world were falling. And it is possible that we could go the other way, the pendulum could swing, and we could see the world break up into three or four or seven distinct markets what again. What you call the vulcanization of the global system. Precisely, and, and I think your, your listeners will understand where that's coming from. So that pendulum will swing. I mean, it always swings. And we swung towards free markets and globalization. We'll probably swing back at some point. So the rate of change will be faster or slower, and there'll be winners and losers. And that's an important point, too. Um, whilst I think the broad movement of disruptive innovation and change won't stop, some parts of the world will actually benefit from balkanization more than others. So from a relative competitive advantage of nations perspective, there are reasons why some parts of the world want more balkanization because they know it's in their favor and it actually is worse for other people. Um, I feel for the world as a whole, free trade globalization is beneficial to everyone. And I know that we can find exceptions to that, and we can certainly find groups of people out of the world who are benefiting less and at a slower rate from these new uh, exciting opportunities we're describing. But on the whole, I still see their circumstance being uplifted. Let, let, me, let me challenge you here on this one because a little bit, because like people would say that the last things that we have witnessed on the global political system, whether it comes to with respect to Brexit or whether it comes with respect to the election of uh, President Donald Trump, is precisely people pushing back against globalization, people pushing back against global trade, people saying, look, I lost my job, my, 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 you know, my sawmill went bankrupt, my mining job has gone out of business. You know, and, and in England, I haven't prospered in the last 20 years while people got to be so rich uh, and the city, you know, got so rich. But, you know, and there was this divide between the London city of voting pro-Europe and then against Europe was kind of like uh, uh, 
sort of more of the, the, the suburban and city divide uh, uh, lines. And so uh, some people would say, look, uh, in the last 20 years, we've had either stagnation at best or even uh, decrease of people's standard of living. People are struggling in America to pay their medical bills more than before, and it's harder to send their kids to school, and it's harder to pay their mortgages. Young people are struggling to buy property. For example, in a big city like where I live in Toronto, we've had 38% rise of property value last year alone uh, in one year, which is kind of amazing. Uh, so all those things put together, and of course, as you even mentioned in your book, the younger generation, Generation C, lives for the longest time ever with their parents in their parents' houses and stuff than before than we're used to. So isn't that political response a reaction of people, whether it's true or not to say that 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 there's no benefits to globalization, that they feel that they're on the losing side and they're trying politically to push back against it. Okay. So um, there's a lot of pieces of information and the narrative you knit them together will, deter will be determined by, on the one hand, your values and beliefs, and on the other hand, by the people you hear and the stories you take on board. And uh, so I don't want to turn this webinar into a political conversation per se, but my narrative around Brexit is not the same as the narrative you gave. I've lived in California for 30 years, so maybe I'm not as in touch with the British people as I You're was. You're probably a lot I... more in touch with the British people than me, but anyway. Maybe or maybe not, I don't know. But my narrative around Brexit, well, no, my narrative around the world is, demonstrably, the circumstance of the humankind has been getting better. We have less children dying in, 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 in childbirth. We have less people without water. We have less people without food. We have people living longer. We have people, if you, if you value economics rather than just health and well-being, we have people with economically, demonstrably more at, a, at the macro level. It's coming at a cost because the environment's suffering. Absolutely. And we need innovation to allow us to improve the circumstance of the human being, whilst at the same time doing it with a lower footprint, which means innovative new technologies. So we still need the disruptive technologies we're talking about. In fact, I would say uh, the long-term future of humankind will only be positive if we disrupt the industrial ways of doing things and replace them with something else. So that's sort of my big macro narrative, but my Brexit narrative is very different from yours. My Brexit narrative is British people wanted, want self-determination, and democracy is about self-determination. And when someone you don't even know is telling you what to do, that at, the, at some point grates. And we swung the pendulum to a world in which unknown politicians in distant places made decisions that did impact negatively local populations and the local populations felt impotent in influencing that. And we, if we talk specifically about disruptive internet regulation in Europe, there's no question that the EU is being one of the wild cards. It's bringing in new regulations that are slowing down and threatening the digital revolution that we're all benefiting from. And meanwhile, in Britain, Britain has a more pro-innovation and technology stance, as does Ireland. 
and the EU was making it difficult for everything that the British people wanted to happen. Now, your, for, your, your point of disaffected voices is absolutely true. Um, as we said earlier on, any disruptive innovation creates positives and it creates negatives. It creates winners and it creates losers. It creates goods and it creates bads. And so you will always have voices that say, for me, this isn't good. My vested interests are being impacted. My job is going away. The learnings that I have are no longer relevant. I don't know how to be successful in this time frame. Exactly. And, and that's true. And because the whole world is shifting and every industry is being impacted and everything we do is being impacted, there are a lot of those voices. And we have to be sympathetic to them. And we certainly have to worry about helping every individual go from where they are to where they could be. But I do believe a lot of it is mindset. So whilst it is true that if you lived your life building a set of skills and those skills are redundant, you would feel let down. That doesn't mean that you lost the ability to learn. I don't think people lose the ability to learn, but I think in their minds, they may believe it's too late for them to learn again and change who they are. And so I think that we're in this phase. It's called the time of transition. It's very disruptive. A lot of voices are speaking about the pains they're feeling, and we have to be compassionate to it. But the reality of the world is that this disruptive phase is going to continue. Every industry is being impacted and everything we're doing is going to change. And we as a society have to figure out how to navigate that change. And we have to help people who are in the bucket of the, the people being negatively impacted. I do think also we need to make sure that democracy doesn't forget that you need, you know, it's, it's the old saying, right? No taxation without representation, mm -hmm. right? It's what gave birth to America. No taxation without representation. If we're not represented in the democratic dialogue, we should not be part of that system. And I think that's actually what the British people say. I, I understand. I see that point. But, uh, and, and I, I kind of very poorly sort of presented it but but anyway i i totally mangled that one up but we're running out of time so i only have three questions and the the the, the last two are very short but the first one is kind of big and it's like okay you said we're going to have all those fundamental changes in everything that everything is going to change what about capitalism then how is that going to change would it change you know, uh, Jeremy Rifkin talks about zero marginal cost society and a sort of a new hybrid society that's going to reflect some of the old capitalist features and new ones and etc. Where do you stand on that? How do you see that future? All right. Well, so let's start really at the core of capitalism. Let's start at the level of the markets, Wall Street or London or Tokyo. Traders that trade stocks and equities, uh, equities um, for the corporations that have listed themselves. That model is absolutely being disrupted, right? Uh, when I was at McKinsey back in the 1980s, we worked on projects to help people move trading off the floor of the stock exchange, and that was extremely disruptive. If you if you were a jobber or a broker 
and you filled out forms and you shouted at each other prices, <laughs> your, your career went away. That all went away. I mean, all, you know, Alison, my co-author, was the chief financial officer for BlackRock Global Investors, which is now, you know, it's now, well, sorry, it was Barclays Global Investors. You know, they were managing one and a half or two trillion dollars, and none of it had open outcry in human beings anymore. It's all technology-based trading, okay? So now you're hearing this very loud voice of disaffection, which is if you're a Wall Street investment banker, you thought that the way things worked is companies grew as private entities, and then at some point they went public, and you made money by doing the initial public offering, and then you got to trade in those stocks as institutional investors bought and sold them. That's being disrupted because the companies are staying private longer. More and more capital is coming into them as private entities. The number of public companies is decreasing. The need for the IPO is actually reducing, though you can still make a lot of money if you do go public. Um, so that whole model of the large corporation listed on the public market, traded in publics in, 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 in the marketplaces of Wall Street and London, I think is going to be challenged. I don't know exactly how quickly that change will occur. And I don't know exactly what the new model will end up being. But my bet is that secondary market trading, peer-to-peer -peer trading, crowdfunding, equity crowdfunding, these things will be more important in the future. And the notion of us looking in our newspaper at, at ticker or ticker tape and calling up our broker is not going to be part of the future. In fact, it's already dead. That particular dialogue of look at the, tech, the, the ticker tape call a human being and they do some trading for us, is all gone. And so financial services is being disruptive, being disruptive right now in all of its manifestations. And this is before we talk about robo-traders and blockchain and other things. And that is the core of capitalism. So your question was about capitalism, but I'm answering it at the beginning with the core model, the industrial era model of the corporation the public market, the trading in the stock, and the flow of capital to the company and, and, and vice versa through dividends. I think that fundamental model is being disrupted. I don't know exactly what it will end up being, but we could broaden that conversation now. We could start talking about the corporation be the virtual corporation, internal innovation be external innovation. You know, you, you, know, you could carry on, and these are building blocks of capitalism. So. I think capitalism is going to be highly disrupted. Now, does that mean that I think people won't have a capitalist mindset? We could have answered that, right? We, we could have said that, you know, uh, the roots of capitalism are self-interest and they are the roots of the decline of capitalism over time because people will become too greedy and greedy will lose ultimately uh, which is Marx's view, right? Capitalism has the seeds of its own decline built within it. Um, I, don't, I don't buy into that. I think that portion of capitalism will continue. I think that individuals care about their own self-interest and it drives and motivates them. And I think we see that in China. You know, Chinese capitalism, which has definitely got Chinese characters, Absolutely, is yeah. proving a very effective model and it's, ch it's changing the lives of a billion people. But it's very different than the model we have here. 
It is. It is. So my, the point I'm trying to make is that I think capitalism, in terms of its its modes of operation, its structures, its ways of doing things, is going to change dramatically. But I actually am a capitalist in the sense that I think the underlying human behaviors that drive the capitalist model won't go away. And I think that then the Chinese model of sort of capitalism with new and innovative characters built into it is not necessarily the Chinese model, but a model of capitalism which has disruptive innovation built into it and which changes the way things happen. Definitely, that's the future. So that would probably be my answer. I haven't written that book, so I'm making this as I'm speaking. Uh, but that's probably my answer to that question. Very good, Andrew, uh, Matthew. Uh, now, we are running out of time here. So very quickly, perhaps, what's the best place for people to find more about you and your work? It's actually the work of uh, my co-author, Alison, and I, Matthew. Um, you can go to fifthera.com, which is our website, and that will tell you all the things we do, the investing activity, the consulting activity, and the way we help companies and countries. We do sovereign work as well. Um, the book, however, is Build Your Fortune in the Fifth Era. It's available on Amazon, and there's also dedicated book landing pages. And we, we are building a network so if there are people who want to continue in this dialogue and speak to us, follow us on Facebook or uh, join our network. And uh, we're going to do as good a job as we can of continue to feed, um, you know, this, our community with the perspectives we have. And then meanwhile, obviously, the role that you play, Nicola, in, in uh, you know, Singularity FM and in your blog is very valuable. I'm definitely, I've, I've taken a lot of value out of reading and watching some of your content. Wow, and thank I'm really, you. Yeah, well, as soon as we hang up, I'm going to read your articles on, you've got to ask the right questions, because I, I learned a lot just listening to that. That was, that's a very important point. I'll send you the link, but this is not about me today. It's about you and your work. So the last and most important question that I always ask is, We've spent almost 90 minutes with you, Matthew, discussing your book in particular and your views about things like capitalism in general, innovation, disruptive change, and technology. What's the most important thing, the single one thing, that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this conversation with you today? Yes. Uh, it's where we began. It's uh, be aware of the choices you're making and make sure that when you come to the end of your life and you look back, you're happy with the choices you made. Um, and our book is just trying to inform everyone that there are other choices they could be making. Um, if you're informed, you make your choice and you're happy with it, God bless you. But don't come to the end of the greatest disruptive wealth creation opportunity the world has ever seen and regret that you chose not to play. That would be that would be very disappointing all around. Matthew Limero, thank you very much for spending so much of your valuable time today with us. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. If you guys enjoyed this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation.